0: I'm Sarah Linquist from Fuse. We're an early stage venture firm based right here in the Pacific Northwest. And just like the founders in our portfolio, we are just getting started. We believe that founders deserve more, more urgency, more community, more expertise, more reliability, more of everything. And we aim to deliver. Today's Operational Excellence episode features Paul Mikesell, the current founder and CEO of Carbon Robotics. Prior to Carbon, Paul co-founded Isilon Systems, which went public in 2006 and was subsequently acquired by EMC for $2.25 billion in 2010. Paul also served as Director of Infrastructure Engineering at Uber, where he grew the team and opened up the company's engineering office in Seattle. Paul knows what it takes to build consequential businesses. In this conversation, he sits down with the Cameron Borman, to share about how to effectively hire, motivate, and lead teams. He will also walk through his employee scoring system that he developed. It's a great method for driving clear performance conversations with employees. Let's get started.
1: Hey, everyone. My name is Cameron Borman. As most of y'all know, and I'm here today with Paul Micassell, the founder and CEO of Carbon Robotics. We originally invested in Carbon Robotics at our predecessor firm, Ignition Partners, back in, was it 2019? 2019. And then we've doubled down and invested through Fuse Fund One into Paul, just given his execution and him being an absolute pleasure and joy to work with. A little bit of background on him before he jumps into his own background. Paul was also the founder and director of engineering of a business here called Isilon Systems. Islon Systems was in the storage, networking, and compute space, building you know physical hardware that uh, uh, you know that sell to customers. That business went public, and then EMC bought them for 2.25 billion. And then Paul, after that, ran a lot of the deep learning at Uber, and this was when Uber was working on a lot of the pretty sophisticated self-driving car stuff. So he's a unique founder with a multi-billion-dollar hardware, you know, IPO, then acquisition, and also running one of the most sophisticated deep learning and AI teams in the world. But we're not here to talk about AI. Most of this conversation is gonna be around hiring, philosophy, around building high-performing teams and cultures. I'll pass it off to Paul real quick. Anything I missed on your background?
2: Yeah, I have a computer science degree from the University of Washington. So I am a local Seattle native, spent 12 years down in San Francisco, That was when I was at Uber, et cetera. Most of my time has been up here in Seattle. I've probably started programming, I think about 10 years old. So back on the old Commodore 64 is great. You know, software always, always spoke to me.
1: How do you start Isilon? How was that? How was that story? Yeah,
2: we were at a company called Real Networks. That was the first job I took out of college. So it was late nineties. And at Real Networks, we were doing streaming media. So for the first time you could put audio and video on the internet. And back in those days, almost there was no video on the internet. And so we developed a system to be able to do this. The whole point was sending packets to a video feed on somebody's computer had to be very timely. And we used UDP for all the packet protocols because people's modems were at the point where they could just barely keep up with this feed. So it was very important to send packets exactly on time. And what I'm describing is essentially a real-time video system or semi-real-time system because you just had to deal with the high latencies of these modems. And that started taking off and then cable came and video on the internet really took off. So the guy who was my boss at Real Networks and I had been talking about the problems that we had seen in many of our customers. And these were people at the time, AOL was a huge internet site and AOL was having trouble scaling out their content They were having trouble keeping track of all their files and where they were going to go, and they needed some version of storage that would just expand. So at this time, there were no really clustered file systems. There was nothing that you could just plug in and keep adding nodes to, right? There's no Hadoop. There's no AWS. There was no Isilon. There was none of this stuff. And so you just had to buy individual filers and then figure out what files you were going to put where. And people came up with schemes you know in software to hash based on the file name and then stick it on a filer based on the hash rotation but then it would that would be a problem when they'd add more filers or things would get hot or whatever load balancing issues. So we developed a system that would allow you to just it was a file system was the main technology that came on a piece of hardware and then you could just add nodes to this system. So we were talking about how to do that and we, we quit Real Networks and went and started this company Isilon Systems. It was a story I'm sure most of your listeners have been through as well, where people said, why would you quit this high paying job with you know stable prospects to go do something crazy? That's probably going to fail. And at some point you just know, you just know that you have a good idea. You certainly know it might fail, but you can't let it go. You have to see, you have to play it out. And you know that you would never be able to get through the day if you'd given up on, on your idea when that spark happens. And so we, yeah, so we quit our jobs and went and started this company, Isolant Systems. We were originally called Endurant way back in the day. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was a name that I came up with. The Series A was a company called Atlas and Madrona. Mm-hmm. Atlas is no longer in the Pacific Northwest. and Madrona, and they did our Series A, and then Series B was Sequoia. And uh, that was kind of how I got into entrepreneurship and starting companies and venture capital, all that stuff. It really started with the idea about we had to build this thing. It wasn't the idea, let's go start a company. It was more about how do we solve this problem. Mm-hmm. And I think that's been a theme through everything I've done, which is that the problem always came first for me. That was kind of the history of how we got Isilon going. You worked there for a while. At some point. I did work there. I,
1: I interned at Isilon on the finance team and Paul was revered by everyone as, as one of the founders. It got big at that point. At that point, EMC had had already bought them. And so it was really a subsidiary of EMC yeah. and got to see the culture at Iceland and go back and to, was it Hoboken? Where was EMC's headquarters? Somewhere, somewhere out, out of East. east. Somewhere out the east. cultures were wildly different.
2: So how many, what was the employee growth of Islawn? When I left, when we filed the S1, I think we were 300 people. Okay, yeah. I filed right when, or I left rather, right when we filed to go public. Mm-hmm. And I was gone by the time EMC, EMC bought the company off the public market. I was yeah. gone by the time EMC purchased the company. EMC bought the company, there were about 800 people.
1: And if we can talk about your Uber experience yeah. as well, what were some of the systems and processes and how did y'all vet
2: yeah. top talent when you're yeah. building that org. Some of this might be a little controversial. And so that's why I'm going to say it, because maybe that's interesting. For software engineers, we were pretty diligent about our coding interviews. And even to this day, everybody that we interview, we have we do coding exercises. So on the whiteboard, we could do it on a computer. And I think it's important because that's your work product. You know, As a software engineer, being able to demonstrate capabilities of things on the whiteboard, I think for us, it's a requirement, but I think the key to coming up with good interview questions is come up with something that you actually had to solve as a part of your job and distill it down to something digestible, You know, cut off all the rough edges and make it a, a straightforward problem. But usually there's an algorithm involved or a data structure that's important to understand the algorithm behind. To be able to solve the issue, Give as many hints as you can. You want people to be successful if they can, if they can get through it, but you have to be really regimented and disciplined about software engineers being able to demonstrate their software engineering skills. And I firmly believe in that. And I think that I think that was important. And I think that was a big part of our success, certainly at Icelon. It gets a little more tricky on the hardware side. You can in mechanical engineering, you can certainly talk about designs and what points are important. I do think it's important on the interview, really have strong technical demonstrations for people on the tech side. For things like sales and marketing, if the marketing person has good demonstration of history of work product and can demonstrate to you why they were excited about the things they've done, Mm -hmm. you can usually get a pretty good feel. You know, marketing is one of those things where a lot of the interview is to make you believe that they're really good at their job Because that's a skill and that skill is going to translate into making people believe that your company is doing it. And then salespeople are energetic, empathetic, driven, right? Every sales team has their own culture. And a lot of that, you can kind of set out from the beginning, but you've got to let that team kind of be their own group. You know, those are the three big pillars of any good business. Over your career, you've hired some of
1: the most talented, particularly software engineers. How did you go about finding these folks?
2: First of all, the best sign of a good leader is somebody who has folks that want to work with them again Mm -hmm. and will work with them at company to company. So, and one of my favorite questions for somebody who's going to be like a VP of engineering or some other title where they're growing a group is who are the folks that you've worked with that have worked with you at multiple places? Mm Okay. Okay. We're fortunate enough now, just generally, that I, of course, know a lot of folks, and I know who's good, and those people came to Carbon pretty early on, and that's been a big secret of our success. Same thing happened, honestly, though, back when we were starting Isilon. We tried to take some of the best people that we had worked with, and the first three guys were all people that I knew from before. So the file system was the core of the IP. The file system was written by myself, a guy called Darren Shack and a guy called Mike Junk. We all knew each other and all worked together before. And that was the start. If you're trying to hire software engineers and and you don't already know who some good ones are, I think that would be a difficult task. I've never been in that position. I always have come from somewhere else and knew who was good. What about on your leadership team?
1: You know, now that, and for, I know we skipped over a bit of the carbon background, but the company recently raised a $35 million, was it Series C? Yeah, Series
2: C our total
1: raise now is 72 million. Yeah, 72 million. million. They've done now nine digits plus in, yeah. in bookings. Yeah. And so a little bit further along. And Paul's been able to build a pretty talented executive team. Yeah. you're software engineering by trade. And so that's yeah. been always the bread and butter, but you've been able to bring on some incredible folks in sales and in marketing and otherwise. What do you look for in the culture of the Executive leaders that you bring on. And how do you make sure that they're gonna fit the the level of drive and aggression it takes to win in startups? Yeah,
2: that's right. Well, I will tell you that okay, so for the later roles, okay, VP marketing, VP sales, those were folks that I already knew and yeah. knew them from other jobs. For the early roles, so the early leaders, I just simply don't really believe in hiring. VPs right out of the gate. Most of the time I will start them as a director, maybe if they're very senior, and then let them prove it and get promoted into that. And we have several of those, in fact, in carbon robotics. And that's worked out incredibly well for us. It's very hard to set the tone of your executive team early on when you're hiring people from the outside. And I think you just got to be really careful about doing that. Yeah. If you're very early on, you know, I would question, do you actually need VPs right. at the beginning or do you need people to get stuff done? What roles do you actually need? Certainly if it's an area that's not your specialization. Mm -hmm. For me, for example, I'm not, I don't come from sales. So when I built a sales team, what did I do? I reached out to all the great sales leaders I knew, right? We consulted with the guy that you and I both know for quite some time before we ever hired the full-time permanent sales VP and brought in sales reps to start and got the machine going. The other thing I've learned as an engineer, just as an aside, because I did make this mistake before, is that you start building your product, customers are excited, you raise some VC money, probably from Fuse if you're good. You think you've achieved product market fit, you start getting sales, right? Customers are happy. You decide you're gonna bring on a sales team. The big mistake to make at that point is to say, I'm now going to hand off my sales process to this sales leader in this team. There are so many things that you were doing that was working along the way, that you probably didn't realize were important, then you just hand that process off to somebody, it's a huge mistake. And I made that mistake at, at ClusterX, actually. The thing you need to do if you're a product person or a technical person and you're building on a sales org is continue that partnership with the sales team and make sure you're still playing an active role in the sales process instead of just like a handoff and here you go, continue on. Until you can demonstrate that you're not needed. And sales is tricky because I always, you know, sometimes people say, well, you got to have your sales leadership make projections about what they're going to do. And then they need to achieve that. Okay. But, but also sales folks are optimistic. They have to be, Yeah, and you got to be really careful about this. And so data past success, looking at metrics, you know, use your CRM, get good with your CRM, care about your CRM, make sure you're tracking what's working and what's not working who's got what deals coming in, what's their close rate. You really need to look at all of this stuff. I got people all over the country, you know? We're about to have people in Europe. I mean, we're, we're, and we'll still get together once a quarter. Go through everybody's territory, what they're doing, what they're planning, what's working, what's not working. Make sure everybody's kind of on the same page about, you know, what's the messaging, what's the expectations? What do you need to get out of a demo? What demos are being successful and not successful? So we do sales kickoff every quarter. I always like to do part of a day every time where we're taking about three hours and we'll just do live calls. Hmm. We'll do live sales. We'll be in a room like this. we we'll follow we'll, one of our reps. We'll have an account and we'll let's, let's call yeah, everybody's quiet. And we let the reps sort of walk through it. And then we talk about what worked and what didn't work. Yeah. This is kind of like the whiteboarding coding exercise in that it sounds intimidating, but once you start doing it, it's just the thing that happens. Right. And uh, you get a lot out of it. You know, you learn a lot. Learn a lot out of that. So I think for those kind of important level settings, strategic, you just got to do them in person.
1: Yeah, I agree.
2: So we talked about hiring.
1: We've talked a little bit about philosophy, managing these folks. What about tracking performance performance, reviews?
2: Performance reviews are very important to me. We have a three-axis rating system. It's the same system I've been using for 20 years. These are orthogonal axes, right? They are non-overlapping, okay? So the first one is skill set and competency, okay? Are you just good at the work of your job? So if you're a mechanical engineer, are you proficient in solid works? Do you make good designs? If you're an electrical engineer, do you know how to do all the right stuff to get a PCB to market? If you're a software engineer, do you have good code? Does it work? Does it stand up to the test of time? Do you fix bugs, et cetera? The second axis, right, is work ethic, okay? Completely orthogonal. Are you going the extra mile? Are you helping when needed? Are you tackling problems that aren't necessarily your problem, but you see the organization needs it solved? In cases where, you know, we do got to grind and get something done for a certain date, are you, you know, is this person capable of doing that when we need it? And those are completely separate from each other, right? You can have somebody who's great in one and different and the other. Okay. And then the third axis of this three axis rate system is interpersonal skill set. Do you get along with others? Can you take feedback? Do you give constructive feedback? Are you just generally you know, friendly to be around? Um, it doesn't have to mean extroverted. It just means, are you somebody that can work with other people? We've all met those folks who are real grinders, who work really hard, who are great coders, but are just terrible people to be around. Mm-hmm. You should have these things that are non-overlapping that you can rate people on. That's my system. You can use it if you want or choose, but I think it's important that they're non-overlapping. Interpersonal skills, yep. work ethic, first one, skill, skill, set. skill set. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's the first thing, the rating system. We rate everybody from one to five. Five is the best and rarely achieved. One means you're basically about to get fired. Three means you're doing fine. You're doing what we expect of you. Four is you're doing amazing and probably going to get promoted. And five is is literally rarely achieved. Uh, The way that we do compensation is it's an exponential. Okay. So it's not linear. We set it up so that you have a certain raise amount. So it's whatever you think your average needs to be, right? For somebody who's a model employee, a three. If you get a three, you get that amount. You get 2.5, no raise, no bonus, no shares, right? We don't do bonuses, but no raise, no shares, okay? If you get a two, you got problems, right? I'm talking about just the average score. If you're below three, we got problems. We got something we got to work on. We got to deal with this issue. And it doesn't mean necessarily you're about to get fired if you're below that. It just means we have some stuff that's serious enough we got to work on. Okay. A four, um, is amazing, right? And there's a multiplier on that. Okay. So you take the standard amount, you have to, you just build yourself a nice exponential curve, which you could do in Excel or, you know, and then, so it starts at one is at the three, right? And then it goes exponential from there and you can play with your scaling factor and figure out what makes sense. Yeah. So why is it exponential? Why is it not linear? Right. Why is, you know, the, why is the Why is the uh, raise of a five more than twice what the raise of a four would be, right? Why is it exponential? The reason why it's exponential is because people at the top of that curve are always the ones who pay dividends in more than just this work output. They set the standard, right? So there's the work output, of course. And they're the kinds of people that other folks aspire to be. to give an example of what you can do. Really great people like, and need to work around other really great people. So you really want to lean heavily into outsized rewards for those folks at the top of the curve, particularly when you're a young startup.
1: Early in a startup's journey, it could be a couple folks that really help drive that when you're 5, 10, 20, 30 in people. It could be those two to five top performers that really help you see around those corners or help amp the team up. And so if those people don't feel like they're rewarded and leave to another business or worse, go to a competitor. I mean, that could change the year trajectory from being the winner in a category to being the 10th best and you know, basically not worth anything.
2: What happens over time, it's very hard to sustain that kind of culture when you start growing to hundreds of people. Yeah. Uber was probably the weirdest. That place got weird very fast as we started growing very fast. And so it's hard, you know, getting to hundreds of people and then thousands of people and maintaining that kind of culture of excellence is difficult. What happened to us at Uber was as we started bringing in more experienced managers, everybody had their own performance system that they wanted to use. And what happened was everybody's system got kind of like added together. Got it. So we started with my like three-point system and then it morphed into a five-point system. And then Travis had this like 15-point scale that he wanted to use. The question you need to ask yourself and, and get your managers to ask themselves is, did I do enough that a reasonable expectation would be met that I tried to help this person? And then after that, you should just, just cut the relationship, right? Early managers have a problem with that because they always kind of think, Oh, I could have done more or whatever. But the other problem is they put themselves in that person's mental space and they say, you know, how would I feel if this was happening to me? Right. The point is the organization can't sustain that. And hopefully the person who you trust to be the manager would not have gotten into that position. And we've, you know, I've been through this a bunch. We went through this recently at Carbon, where there was somebody who wasn't, who wasn't working out. We talked to the manager. He wanted to let it go for another cycle. And he thought there was thing. And I, and my point was, let's just fire them tomorrow.
1: Right.
2: Uh, And we talked about it. We talked about it. We talked about it. Okay. We fired them the next day. Yeah. And immediately that manager felt completely better. (laughs) realized that this was the right decision all, around, all along. And what I will tell you is when we went back and checked this person's work product, it turned out that they had basically just been lying about how things were, were going and that they were way behind in what they were supposed to be doing anyway. Right. So all of this stuff kind of came out. And if we had waited, we would have wound up in a spot where there would have been some more progress on this thing, but it would have been probably not very good. It was certainly not heading in the right direction. And we would have to make the same decision later. Get the documentation to the point that you feel like this is demonstrable, that you gave them goals, they didn't achieve them, and then let them go. At some points, you will get sued. So get a lawyer, you know? Yeah. you built
1: businesses during boom times, during downturns, you know, anything else parting wisdom
2: that you'd like to leave today? You know, there's all this tropes about the best prepared people seem to get all the luck, et cetera, right? Right. I think that's absolutely true, though. You try to do everything as well as you do your main thing because you never know where the opportunities are going to come from. And sometimes you get shocked and surprised by something that came up and you just happen to be ready to capture that opportunity. Yeah. And when I think about all the stuff that happened to us at Isilon, all the things that have happened to us at Carbon, even the things that happened to us at Uber, a lot of the time, the success comes from events that you couldn't have planned, weren't planning for, but we're prepared to take advantage of because you were doing everything else as excellently as possible. Yeah. So just think about the ways in which you do things as a company. Are you ready to jump on a new opportunity that comes on and do it with quality?
0: We hope you enjoyed this conversation. There is more to come in our next episode coming in a few weeks that will feature Fuse operating partner, John Connors. The topic of discussion there will be how to build and run world-class boards. As always, we appreciate you joining us and see you on the next one.